if you if you're a firefighter and you say, well, I want to be a company officer, one of the best things you can do, in my opinion, is work as hard as you can to be the best firefighter nice. you are capable of doing. When you do that, people are going to notice. Firehouse Vigilance presents the Weekly Scrap, a podcast dedicated to the never-ending fight against complacency. I'm very excited because this is Weekly Scrap number 50, a milestone event. I have a very special guest today and Chief Dennis Riley, who is gracious enough to be the guest on Weekly Scrap number 50, uh, more than more than four decades. I'll get the exact number. Is it 45 years, Chief? 46? Yeah, 45. 45, okay. Uh, in the fire service, amazingly, still as plugged in as ever, the very first day I talked to this man on the phone, he said, hey, I'm going to have to call you back because I'm getting my PT in. And this was just a few weeks ago. So uh, he is still plugged in, still getting it on. Chief officer in California, Missouri, North Carolina, New Jersey. He has written articles. He is a speaker. And most importantly, he is a firefighter's firefighter. And that doesn't even touch on your military career. So, Chief, I'm tr- if I kept going, I could talk for another and. Uh, 30, 40 minutes about just all the stuff you've done in your life. So uh, it is my pleasure to have you as Weekly Scrap guest number 50. Thank you, sir. Well, I am you know, honored beyond all means to uh, be able to join you and to get the 50 spot. I mean, this is, a, this is a big milestone for you and for the Weekly Scrap. So I'm going to have to really going to have to bring the A game to you know live up to those expectations. And I do have to put in a plug. Uh, I have recently been named as the new fire chief in Pittsburgh, Kansas. So in a couple of weeks, I'm going to head back to the Midwest and take over from uh, Chief Simons out there in Pittsburgh. Uh, Nice looking little city, great looking department that I think is in a really good place. And I'm just, you know, looking forward to, you know, getting, you know, fully involved with the community and that organization. So got, got to give a plug to my new bosses and my new organization. Excellent. So heading back to God's country here in the Midwest. That's what they say. All right. Fair. I, I'm, I'm biased. I'm right below you in Oklahoma. So Good. I'm very excited. Uh, to everyone watching live, if you have questions for Chief Riley or myself, please do not hesitate to ask them in the comment section. I will throw them at him and uh, we can put him on the spot. Uh, did I miss anything at all or anything to add besides in the, in the introduction? No, I think uh, yeah, I think you covered the bases. Uh, you know, like I said, uh, I've been around for I've been around for a while. Uh, I'm very proud of the places I've been. Uh, I hope that I've been able to help and make a contribution everywhere that I've been. And you know, along with the fire service, you know, I'm a, I am an Army veteran. I spent about six and a half years altogether. I deployed to the first Gulf War. So you know, go Army, be Navy. Fair enough. Excellent. Thank you for that, sir. All right, I'm ready to dive right into the scrap then, and I'm going to start right at the top with a question that I want to hear the answer to, and not only hear it, but I want to hold it as I try to finish out my career, and that is, what has been your secret to staying as fired up and plugged into the fire service as you have over the four decades? Well, I think there's, I think there's two elements to that. You know, number one is you know what comes internally from me, and you know I can't put my finger on it, but you know, this is all I've ever done. Uh, this is all I've ever wanted to do. Uh, I've, you know, I've been fascinated by the fire service from an early age. I was a junior volunteer as soon as I was old enough in uh, Long Island, New York. And I've basically been in the business or I've been in the service all my life. It's it, it's really all that I know. 
And it's been so good to me. I've had no desire to look somewhere else. I was I was listening to an interview. And I don't know if it was Eric Clapton or Phil Collins. It was a musician. Okay. And he asked the question, if you weren't a, a musician, what would you do? And the answer was, well, this is all I've ever done. So I don't know anything else. And I don't really have the desire to do anything. So that's the internal part. I think just as important, if not even more important, is the external part. And that is I have worked for some phenomenal organizations and I've worked with some people that are just I, I, I don't get it, man. I, I think they're from another world. As hard as I as hard as I work, I just look up to these people and go, you know, my Lord, you know, how, how do they how how can they be as good in this business as they are? Because I work as hard as I can in you know, I, I, I don't put myself in the same category as them. So being around people like that and being in organizations like, you know, the Cherry Hill Fire Department, Sunrise Beach Fire Protection District, are just things that drive me to stay in the game. And really, you know, I, I you know, part of it is I want these people that I think so highly of, and, and the list is just, I mean, I, I, I was thinking about, well, you know, I can start naming names, but the list right. is so long, I'll leave people out, and I don't want to do that. But these people I think so highly of, I want them to be able to look at me and say, yeah, he gets it. Yeah, he he's one of us. So those are the things that, you know, give me the fire and the drive to, you know, to push on, you know, to, to make it another day, to, to make it a better place to contribute the talents that I've been given by God or whoever, and you know, just to be able to give back and be part, and and that you know, that's what works for me. Okay. So the internal and the external and the giving back. Yep. Nice. Very much. Uh, I want to move right to the toughest lessons you have learned. Uh, I know that's a very broad question. You can take it any well, direction you want to go. Well, I think. Uh, and I'm actually, you know, you, you talk about, you know, how I write and publish. I actually have something that's coming out and, and it's the leadership lessons they don't talk about in the textbooks. And one of the things that I, that I write about is, you know, when you're in a leadership position, and this is a very, very tough lesson, you've got to understand that the ebb and flow is going to come. You know, you, you, may, you get made, you, know, you, you make a promotion, you step up. And boy, things are going really well. You know, you, you have that honeymoon after, well, you know, this is great. And you right. start doing some things and things are going along. And then all of a sudden, you know, out of the blue, you know, the 10-ton anvil drops on your head. And it's like, man, I, I didn't see that coming. Boy, I wish I would have known that. And that is a tough, tough lesson when that happens. And it's happened to me on several occasions. And, and the lesson is... You've got to be able to accept the ebb and flow of leadership if you take a leadership position. Do the best that you can. Work as hard as you can. Do the right thing the right way for the right reason at the right time. You'll be accountable. Set standards. Do all those things. You can do all those things and sit there and say, man, I'm doing a really, really good job. And have your peers say, hey, you're doing really well. And then come in on a Saturday at eight o'clock in the morning 
and have something happen or make a mistake that just is 180 degrees away from where you were 20 minutes ago. And, you know, and, and that's, a, you know, that's a hard thing to chew over. And, you know, what happened to me on a couple of occasions is it took a long time for that to come. And, you know, I just build success and I have a little success and I have a little success. And I'm really starting to feel good about myself. Right, right. And the danger is I'm starting to feel really comfortable and I drop my guard, I get complacent, I do something, I make a bad decision and then whack, you know, you know, I'm a shift commander. So I'm the top dog. Right. And, you know, I'm doing a really good job and I make a mistake. And all of a sudden the top dog is sitting on the other side of the chief's desk trying to explain this bad decision that I made. And it's just, it, it's a real, it can be a real kick in the teeth is what I'm saying. So that's one lesson that I learned. You know, number one, you got to go with, you've got to be able to ride with the ebb and flow of leadership. And the second lesson that I learned, and, and I steal this quote from, from somebody, is a leader should really look, <clears throat> excuse me, to be the dumbest person in the smartest room. I don't have all the answers. And, 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 you know, and once again, all of us are humans. All of us have emotions. All of us can get sucked into the little vacuum. And like I said, you know, you got the crisp white shirt on with the three trumpets on your collar. And you're, you know, you drive around a car, it's a shift commander. You get wrapped up in all of these things. And, you know, sooner or later, it's easy to let that, kind of get a hold of yourself and you got to kind of push that off and say, my goal is to be the dumbest person in the smartest room, which means I have to take my time and my energy in my skills and invest it in developing the people around me. Because when I was a shift commander, I had 33 people on my platoon and I had some people who were absolutely rock stars and I hope and I think that I did a really good job investing in them so that they can develop themselves to their fullest potential. And when they did, it made me the dumbest guy in the smartest room. And I could just, you know, stand in the back and say, I don't have to have all the answers. I don't have to be the smartest guy. Now, I am the leader. So number one is whenever anything goes wrong, it's my fault. Okay. Nice. When we do something, when we do something well, they did. But when it's when we got to start paying the freight, then I get up on the front of the line. Paying the freight. I'm, you know, I'm taking notes here. I'm taking notes. I hope you don't. When I look away, I'm actually oh, writing down ahead. notes. So I like a lot There's of what you're saying. So I take the responsibility, but then over the course of time, I'm able to kind of stand back and just let those folks around me grow. And I have found that to be the most one of the most rewarding things in my career, and one of the most important things in my career is to be able to do that, to be able to park all that nonsense to the side and concentrate on that. So I would say, you know, the, you know, the two things that I learned: number one, you got to you got to ride the ebb and flow of leadership, and you know, that first time when the anvil drops on your head could be enough to make you go back down into the bunker to make you say, Hey, look, you know, I don't want to have that experience anymore. 
So instead of getting out there and engaging and pushing and, you know, trying to make decisions and trying to make things better, I'm just going to, you know, hunker down so I can survive. Now, I've seen people do that. Right, right. You know, I've seen leaders do that. And, you know, then I think you lose your effectiveness as a leader when you do that. So, you know, the anvil's got to dro- going to drop on your head. You're going to have to pay your penance, whatever. But then the next tour is going to come along and the sun's going to come up or something's going to happen where you're going to be able to do something good or to, you know, make some contribution. So you just got to kind of ride it out, you know, and, Hey, that wave's going to pass. Now on down, on down the road, another one's going to come along. And what's, what I've found for me is I've had that a few times. And now when, you know, when the anvil comes, it's like, okay, here it is again. So, you know, you, you, you deal with the issue and then you shake it off and then you go about, you know, doing your business the next day. So that's important. And then, like I said, the other thing is, you know, strive to be the dumbest guy in the smartest room. Do everything that you can to bring the talent and the potential and the knowledge and the skills out of the people who are around you. And, and they make you look good. I mean, I have a, I have a written document that, that I pass out whenever I go into a new command. And one of the things that I say in there is that I understand that my success is totally dependent on my ability to fit into our group and to be a member of our team. Nice. So nice. I think that's important. No, and, that's an And idea. you know what? It's worked really well for me in the past. I mean, I, I've, I've traveled through several organizations and in the vast majority of times I, you know, I go back to those organizations and I say, Oh, Hey, you know, how you doing? Great. Great to have you back. Come in, sit down, do, do whatever. It's like, it works. It works. Howard Reinwald has chimed in and said, my man. So there, there's uh, from down Texas way saying hello. You know, I, I do some stuff with FD tactics and I'm not afraid to give a plug. I think that, you know, I think Howard and, 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 uh, and, and, and Kyle and Mo Davis, I mean, those guys yes. have got it. They've got it sewed up tight. So they if are, you have they're straight shooters, man. If you have an opportunity, to hook up with those guys, it's worth it. Go ahead and do it. And if I'm not mistaken, I'm going to be part of the uh, the Box Alarm Fire Academy in Galveston coming up toward the end of the year. So if you're interested in in hearing from me, and believe me, you know, if the other rooms are sold out, then, you know, come listen to me. But if you can get into some of those other rooms, get into them. But I'm going to be down there. It's in Galveston, I think, in November. Nice. Very nice. Yep. Awesome. Looking forward to it. And I did want to touch on your question, your answer to that question there, because what I got out of that, I mean, as I listened to you speak and answer on it, was just a lot of humility, uh, very humble in your in your, uh, or actually just suppressing your own ego to try to be the dumbest person in the smartest room. And what I want to know is how long has it taken you? Like basically, uh, were you always this humble, or have you? Is it some hard lessons? You know, it was some hard lessons. Uh, you know, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a. Well, first off, I was I was in the 82nd Airborne Division in the mid 70s, and when I got to my platoon, I was the only person that was not did not have a combat patch on their uniform. Okay. I mean, I worked with I worked with dudes 101st, 173rd. We had a couple XSF guys, so you know I, I kind of grew up 
I, I mean, I, I really, when I got to Fort Bragg, I was just, I was just an overgrown kid. I really kind of grew up in that environment around people like this. So I was a little bit, you know, I, I was a little bit aggressive. I was a little bit hard headed. Sure. In all honesty, I, I was somewhat obnoxious, but our mission at that point in time required us to be like that. So I had to have the chip knocked off my shoulder a few times. And, and, and I did, you know, and I did. And I think that, you know, where I am now is all part is part of the journey. Sure. Uh, you know, I, I would like to say I was always like this, <laughs> but you know, that's, that's not true. I right mean, on. You know, it, it comes in time. You know, it's just like wine, you know, you know, wine mellows with age. And I think that's what's happened to me. And I've had children, you know, I, I've raised kids and I've gone through the teenage years and I've got grandkids now. And those things, you know, have kind of softened the edges up a little bit. Sure. And has made me realize that I'm just one piece of the puzzle. You know, that's another thing about leadership, especially when you start making rank, you know, you're, you're a battalion chief, shift command, assistant chief, no matter where you are, and, and I learned this as a fire chief, you know, and, and I had some rough times as a fire chief. Even being a fire chief, I was answering to somebody. Even though I had, I, I wore the most trumpets of, every, of anybody, I was still one piece of the puzzle. And, you know, I think my time in Cherry Hill helped me learn that. And my time, and, and I'll give out a shout out to the Sunrise Beach Fire Protection District in Missouri. I learned a lot being the chief out there, and I'm very, very thankful for those experiences. And once again, I had some great people surrounding me out there in Missouri that allowed me to sit back, you know, say, oh, hey, hang on, wait a minute, you know, redo this, redo that, and, and kind of change my approach. And, and it made me really – it made me realize how important it is to be authentically humble. You know, I, 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 I see know. some I, I yeah. see some folks out there and they throw the word around because it's the buzzword and it's what, you know, everybody expects them to say. But if you look at their actions and you look at the way they conduct themselves, they're really not humble. I mean, they're just saying it because it's, you know, the neat thing to say. My experiences as a chief and my experiences as a fire chief really demonstrated to me how important it was not only to say that I'm humble, but try to be humble as best I can. And of course, here I am, you know, a guest on a podcast talking about me, me, me. So, no, no, it's awesome, man. And uh, Howard Reinwald chimed in again. He said the hardest job in the fire department is being a good fire chief. Now, I don't have any experience with that, but I can say that uh, it's definitely got to be the least fun job at the fire department. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, you know, if outside and, looking and in, know, outside looking in. Go ahead. You know, I know I, I'm going to save my answer for the five questions because I know that they're coming. Right on. But, yeah, you know, being a fire chief can really, you know, it, it can be a meat grinder. I mean, it can really kind of wear on you. But on the other, on the other side of that coin is – it does give you some ability and some influence. I mean, when I go out to Kansas, I'm going to be the guy who gets to talk to the city manager. Yeah. I'm going to be the guy that can call up the budget director and schedule a meeting and look at cash flow 
And once I get a feel for that, then I can make some realistic recommendations to the city manager and I can, you know, get some stuff done for the organization, for the community. And as far as I'm concerned as the fire chief for the members of your organization. So, yeah, you know, there's ups, there, there, there are up and, and downsides of that coin. You know, certainly as I was looking, as as I was looking for a job, there were some deputy chief positions. There was a battalion chief position. And, you know, they they probably would have been fun. But, you know, the fire chief position does give me a chance to have some real influence over an organization. So, and, and, and I'm looking forward to it. And I'm hoping I'm going to be able to get out there and do a good job for those folks. I have no doubt of that. So, well, thank you. Um, what, uh, you have served at all levels of the fire service. So advice, I want to, I want to get from you advice for, uh, it doesn't matter the level, but for people who are thinking about promoting, what is your advice then? Which I know we've already kind of touched on it, but go ahead. Well, I think the, you know, the number one thing is do not prepare for the test, prepare for the job. Nice. Because people take the test, you know, and, and you know, I come from the Northeast and, you know, there are plenty of test fir- firms back there. You know, you can, if you are halfway intelligent, you can spend some money with a test firm that's going to get you ready for the test. And as long as you execute on test day, you're going to get promoted. Now, the problem is the day after the test or the day you get made is the day you got to go to a firehouse. And you got to run calls, right. and you got to make decisions, and you got to supervise personnel, and you got to do training, and you've got to look out for your members. And you know, your second day on shift, somebody's going to walk in, close the door, and say, "Hey, I'm at the end of my rope. I'm ready to kill myself. What do you do?" <laughs> really, no, and, I'm with you. And, and I take that example from Mark Davidson, who you had sure. on. Yes who is, uh, you know, just a rock-solid guy, one of the the sharpest people. Uh, You know, I'm kind of dumbfounded that he's a captain because he is absolutely chief officer material. Absolutely. When he talks about some of the officer development training they're doing in Fairfax, that's a scenario that they talk about. And their goal is to prepare people to sit in that seat and have to deal with these issues. And, man, that's a big issue. Just because you spent a bunch of money with a test prep firm or just because you read the, you know, the ARCO books and all this other type of stuff, you have to ask yourself, are you going to be ready to handle that situation? Are you going to be ready to handle a civilian storming through the bay, yelling and screaming because four days ago the E-Platoon drove by their house and they laid on the air horns and woke their baby up. I mean, those are things that happen. And, you know, we, you know, we may snicker about that, but that's a big, big issue, especially for that citizen who's turned sideways over this issue. So my advice for people who are going to promote up is prepare yourself for the job. You know, talk to your officer, and say, hey, look, hey, Lou, Cap, Sarge, Chief, whatever. You know, what are the three things that you never imagined you were going to have to deal with 
that you ended up dealing with in your first 30 days. You know, people who have a good reputation, you know, and, and, and this is another point, don't be in a rush to promote because it's always going to be there. You know, the fire department's not doing away with captains tomorrow. Um, newsflash. 200 years from now, there's going to be fire captains, there's going to be lieutenants, there's going to be battalion chiefs. So those positions are all going to be there. Don't be in too rush, too much of a rush to promote because that's going to give you time to build your network. That's going to give you time to start getting some contacts. That's going to give you time. And this is very, very true. If, you, if you're a firefighter and you say, well, I want to be a company officer, one of the best things you can do, in my opinion, is work as hard as you can to be the best firefighter nice. you are capable of doing. When you do that, people are going to notice. When you're putting in that type of effort, the good officers are going to notice. And if you're in a big organization where there's movement, when you, sit, when you have that as your handle, your reputation, the good officers are going to try to get you into their career. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. Because they want you. I mean, yeah. you know, look, look, I mean, I don't want to take I don't want to take a turd to an emergency. I'm with you. I want to take the best that I can get. So if you work real hard to build that rock solid reputation, you got a real good chance of being assigned to the good officers. If you want to prepare yourself for promotion, work under some good officers. No doubt. Because there's a reason why they're good. And those people are always, I, I, I have never seen a good officer who is not willing to share everything they know with the people under their command. Wow. No, my advice. My advice. No, that's beautiful. And, and it cascades too. So you take care of your reputation, you get stuck with a good officer, it just cascades and builds on itself. Uh, you know, yeah. absolutely. No. Uh, you know, at, Absolutely. And then when you become a good officer, I, I mean, like you said, it, it's climbing the ladder, man. When you become a good officer, the battalion chiefs are going to say, hey, I want that count on my platoon. So you, you know, so they, so you go to work for a good battalion chief. Who do you think is the best person that can prepare you to be a good battalion chief? A good battalion chief. Right on. Or... Or the flip side of that is go to work for the worst battalion chief in the fire department. Just watch what they do and then write down the list. And I'm not going to do that. And you know what? I had that experience too. And that experience helped me a lot. So, no, absolutely. We learn a lot from the, the ones that do it badly. It's a sure. tougher lessons, not near as fun. Uh, and they're out there, you know, as much as, you know, as much as we would think, or as much as we want to purge them from the organization, well, I tell you what, lots of luck. I mean, I've, I have fired people before, and it is, I, I mean, it is literally, it, it's like sliding down a razor blade. It is a difficult, difficult thing to do. So, you know, they're out there. If they are, figure out who they are and then learn from them just like you learn from the good ones. Nice. Very nice. Um Two words that I've heard you use a lot, even today, but throughout uh, what I, as I've researched you, is accountability and standards. Um, I just want to talk about how important those are, not just personal standards, uh, sure. but especially from a leadership perspective. Well, I think, uh, I think 
you can't have an effective organization and you can't be a good leader unless you're talking about those things, you know, accountability. Now, <coughs> excuse me, I have a lecture I do on leadership, and, and there's another one that I'm going to throw in there into this conversation. I talk about responsibility and accountability. Accountability can be a crutch where, you know, okay, you screw something up and you say, okay, my bad. Okay? And that's good. I mean, you should do that. Sure. But what I strive for when I get people to my command is for them to be responsible. And responsible people on very rarely have to stand up and be accountable because responsible people know what their job is. They know how to get their job done. They don't need a tremendous amount of supervision. And they're the ones who are going to be able to pull the trigger at trigger time. So they're responsible. I mean, they got that all laid out. Uh, responsible people know, okay, I'm transfer. I, I, I've rode an engine for seven years and I'm transferring over to the truck. And my seven years on an engine does not necessarily transfer to solid truck skills. So that seven-year veteran is going to go to the three-year person who's been on a truck for three years and say, hey, look, man, feed me. Get feed me, baby. Right. I, right. I need to know everything that you know and then some so I can be able to pull the trigger at trigger time. That's what responsible people do. So I think – those are the things that we should be talking about to our subordinates. Those are the behaviors we should be modeling back to people. And when we do, very seldom are the times where, you know, we have to be accountable because 99% of the time being responsible is going to put us in the right position and we're going to do the right thing. You know, now I, I, I'm a big Jocko Willamette fan. You know, I, I read, you know, extreme ownership and all this stuff. And I think he's, you know, he hits the nail on the head. In that 1% of the time, the leader stands up and says, hey, that one, this, is, this is mine. I made a mistake. I made a bad call. I did whatever. I put my guys, in, I put my people in a bad position, whatever. It's on me. If there's a performance issue, and hopefully you've got that relationship with your boss. If there is a performance issue, let me go handle the issue. Right. And if I can't handle it, then we'll come back and we'll figure out if we're going to take this, you know, take their uniforms back and, you know, give them the McDonald's application and say, you know, Pizza Hut's hiring too. Good luck. <laughs> well, you know, well, you know, I'm going to handle those issues. So I think responsibility, accountability, that's it. Is In terms of standards, you know, I think standards, I use the term expectations and I give out expectations memos. I've had, I have a series of those that I've written from the time I was a company officer to a battalion chief to, you know, a fire chief. And I'd, nice. always, give, I'd always give them to, you know, that level I was supervising. And this is where my standards are. You know, everybody's got a job description. Yeah, okay, whatever. You know, six-page job descriptions at HR. You know, HR is copied from the Internet. Big, big deal. We all know what, you know, the job description for a firefighter is. If if we don't, then, you know, like, really, what are we doing in this business? We know that. Expectations are what I expect from you. You know, what, what, you know accountability, you know, like you said, accountability, responsibility, attitude, 
teamwork, all those type of things. And that's what I put into my expectations memos to say, this is the standard in my command. This is what I expect. I expect you to be honest. I expect you to, you know, to, you know, be hardworking. I expect you to have an opinion and I expect you to voice your opinion. And if you disagree with me, that's okay. I mean, you can do that. In turn, I expect you to respect the fact that I'm the boss and at the end of the day, I've got to make the decision that I think is best. So you respect my right to make the final decision and I respect your right to have a voice. So these are the type of things that I put into my expectations memos, which, you know, we could say my standards memos or whatever we want to call them. But I think when you do these three things, when you have those expectations, when people understand your concept of responsibility Responsibility, and your command, and then people know that everybody from the boss down is going to be accountable. You know, I've seen this before. The bosses blame everybody else, right? right? Okay, so I'm, I'm Joe Lugnut, the fireman. And, you know, this is, you know, the 14th call of the day. And, man, I got a baby at home and I haven't slept in a week. And, you know, my, my wife lost her job. And I got a lawn care business on the side. And I'm doing all these type of things and I make a mistake on a run. Okay. And it's not a real critical mistake, but it was a mistake that I should, you know, own up to. That I should say, hey, look, man, you know, that was my bad when we do our hot wash or whatever. If that person's working in an organization where the bosses aren't accountable, when the bosses are blaming everybody else, do you blame that person for not standing up right. in the hot wash and saying, hey, look, man, I threw the ladder to the wrong window? Yeah, you're going to hide but, it. Yeah. Yeah, you're going to hide it. You know, I, it's not right. I mean, I'm not condoning right, it. Right, right. But I certainly see how it can happen. So – Accountability has got to start from the bosses down. The bosses are the ones who create the environment of accountability in an organization. And I'm absolutely 100% a believer in that. I will not call names, but I can take you to places right now and point my finger and say, they don't do it. And if you peel the onion back a little bit, you'll go, "Mm, he was right. Right on, right on. Hannah Elliott is chiming in. She says, Chief Riley, what does having mental resilience mean to you as a chief officer? Hannah's always throwing these questions out. I watched the real last one, (laughs) and she really, you know, she she really, she took it to chief, you know. So mental resiliency, I think, you know, when I look at, you know, characteristics of people who – are going, you know, we work in a high-risk, high-threat environment, very demanding. We have to make critical decisions, incomplete data sets, in compressed time frames. Right on. That's that's what we do. Very good now, description. Now, we, we may only do it, you know, once or twice a year, but when, we, when that occasion comes up, we've got to be able to do that. When I look for people who can do that, one of the things I look for are the resilient people. So to me, Hannah, resilient people are the ones who can survive the grind. 
They're the ones that can come in every day and, you know, shift changes at seven. The resilient people, they're in the firehouse gear at the rig, 640, ready to go. You know, they, they're the first ones on the rig. You know, they, you know, you get 17, 18 runs. It's no big deal. Uh, I heard a sergeant, I heard a chief master sergeant from the Air Force Special Tactics uh, Wing talking about gritty people. You know, you can give them a shit sandwich and they just smile at you and say, eh, okay, you know, whatever. Those, that is, that's how I define the resilient people. And where that really comes into play is when you have that bad run, when you, you know, when you just, you know, just that really nasty bad run that's kind of chewing at you, you know, are you able to not shake it off? Because I think we know now that the tendency for firefighters just to kind of shake it off and move on is really not been a good thing for us. But the resilient people are the ones that can, can handle that, that can manage that, you know, to the point where they know, hey, listen, I got to get some help. I got to talk to somebody. I got I to, you know, things are not well with me based on that run. So I need to get some help. I need to, you know, talk to whoever. So I, I think that's what that resilient person is. And then, you know, I guess circling back to what I think is so very important, are the resilient people or the ones that can smile at the grind. It's like, right. well, okay, no problem. You know, it, it's really kind of funny when you think about it. And, and, and I worked for a chief named Bob Giorgio, and one of the best people I've ever worked for and, and, and just a great boss. He helped me develop tremendously. And we become very, very close friends. And Bob would talk about, you know, engineers, chauffeurs. We call them chauffeurs, right? Right. How you know, how many people check the oil in your car every day before you go to the grocery store? Yeah. Nobody. Right. Nobody. But our chauffeurs at the fire department, at least in Cherry Hill, when you came in, we expected you to check the oil in the rig. So it's not something that you're doing on a regular basis, but it's something you do at work. And it's real, real easy to get into the complacency. And I want in. There's, there's not a puddle, puddle of oil underneath the rig. It's okay. But the resilient people are the ones that can take the grind and understand that it's important that we check. And they get in there and they check the oil every day. And then over the course of the month, they realize, hey, look, man, I had to add a quart of oil to that rig twice right. this month. Wait a minute. Something's going on. Maybe there's a bad ring in there. Maybe I need to tell my boss so he can tell the mechanics and they get the thing in the shop and they do a compression test. And it's like, hmm, you know, the cylinder, you know, number four cylinder's got a bad ring in it and the oil's burning off of it. Because they had a resilient chauffeur who could come to work every day and survive the grind, you know, survive the Monday. That's one thing about our business, and, 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 and we talk about it all the time. You know, you, you got, you know, 30 seconds of terror interspersed between two years of mundane activities. The resilient people can just get gritty. They can just say, eh, okay, no problem. And they smile. can check their air pack every day. You know, they come, they come into work, and they check their air pack, and they get it on their back, and they go through their function test. That's what I think resilient people do. And – when you roll all these things together, 
it will give you that ability and that reputation to sustain in the really difficult times. And I hope I answered Hannah's question. And if I didn't, if she wants me to follow up, I mean. I promise you. If it's one thing Hannah will do, if she's not clear, she'll ask another one. Oh, I know. I know. I've been ready for her. I, I, <laughs> I, was, trying to, I was trying to figure out if there was a good way to block her, but it didn't work. Didn't so. work out. Yeah. she's She is resilient. Um, Bring it. Uh, oh, and I, t- I wanted to touch on that answer because you you tie it right back to what you said earlier. It's the resilient people are basically the ones that are responsible. I mean, if it really built down to it, and they're responsible yeah. with that smile on their face. Just just gritty, gritty people. It doesn't matter what you throw at them; they just kind of smile at you. And say, eh, okay, whatever. You know, next. Perfect. Uh, Supervision and the courage to supervise. This is a quote I stole from one of your articles, your article called, uh, Should We Be Using Nothing Showing? And it, I love that that supervision and the courage to supervise. Uh, just talk on that for a second and what you meant. Sure, sure. So, you know, you bring up the article, you know, I, I kind of got bashed by it. You know, I kind of got bashed on that. You know, oh, you know, nothing showing is a second in time and it doesn't mean anything. Yo, yo, dude go back and read the article because right. I say that. Okay. The curse supervised, you know, is when you're, when you go out the door, put your stuff on. There's the courage to supervise. Nice. You know, the bosses need to turn around and say, put your stuff on. I, I had one time, one time in my career in Cherry Hill that, you know, as a shift commander, and I was a shift commander for nine and a half years. And the only time I had this happen to me, now it may have happened and they got away with it. They didn't, I didn't see it. Right, right. Oh, my fire alarm to a high rise. Uh, first engine gets in on it. I get in on it. The truck stages at the entrance of the parking lot. And I look and there's an arm hanging out the window and I can see skin in the t-shirt sleeve. Guy didn't have his turnout gear on. I said, okay, no problem. We do whatever. Release the companies. And I called, I called a company over to me. So they drive up and I you know, do one of these numbers to the lieutenant. And I tell them, if you ever show up on a run again and your people aren't in your gear, you're going to be in the chief's office explaining why we should not demote you. Policy and more policy, you know my expectations are if you're going to a run involving fire, including a firearm, because until we get there and we confirm that it's an accidental or an MFA or, you know, a a faulty system, we're going to assume there's a fire because that's what the firearm is telling us. If you ever do that again, I'm telling you right now, you're going downtown with me. And you know what? I talk to the chief every day. And when I bring you in that office and we have this conversation I got a hundred dollars in my wallet says, I know how that conversation is going to go. And he said, I get it. And he just drove away, dealt with the issue. It was done. Never happened again. But that's the, you know, that's what I think the courage to supervise means. You know, I saw it. Okay. I knew it. It was a faulty alarm. It was, it it was a nothing run. I could have turned my back and just gone about my business no but, harm, no foul type deal, right? First supervisor. I had no, we had another I had another one had a we had a Mac aerial scope with the old canopy cab. So I'm I'm sitting I'm sitting there like a Wawa getting a cup of coffee or whatever, 
and the rig goes down the street and the two guys are standing up in the back. You know, and you're not sitting sitting down. They're standing up, canopy cam. I call them on the radio, go back to the firehouse. So the officer gets on the phone, gets on the radio, and says, well, we're in route to – I I don't care where you're going. I'm telling you, go back to the firehouse right now. So, I, so and the Wawa was right across the street from the firehouse. So I pull in the parking lot. They come pulling in. And I said, everybody get in the office right now. So I take them in the office. I slam the door. I said, I saw you guys stand up in that jump seat. And I'm telling you right now, don't you ever do it again, period, end of story. Everybody on this company is responsible. The lieutenant should have stopped it. The chauffeur should have said, I'm not moving the truck. The senior man was one of the people standing up, and the new person should have known better. So don't you ever do that again. And if you do, you'll answer to me. Courage to supervise. Same thing. I could have let that go. And, and I got a bad rap from that. You know, the guys, you know, I mean, they were they were all bent out of shape. Oh, you know, the chief yelled at us, and he's mean. And I don't care. I don't care. You give me all the bad rap you want. But if that truck has to stop short and you go flying over that cab and get killed, I'm the one who's going to have to go knock on the door and say, well, by the way, your husband or your spouse or your son or your daughter, whatever, isn't coming home because I didn't have the courage to correct create, uh, correct behaviors that I saw. Right. I think that's courage. I think that's courage to supervise. You know, another thing that I, you know, I see all the time, you know, do you remember, you know, and I think the National Foreign Firefighters Foundation is doing some great work. I don't knock them. I, I, I get it. I'm totally in tune with them. But do you remember the campaign they had, you know, the courage to be safe? Yes. You know, wear your turnout gear regardless right. of what. To me, that's the courage to supervise. You mean to tell me that there's officers in the fire department? that will go to fires and not make their people put their gear on before they get on the rig. That's courage supervisor. You know, that's what I think is so important. And, and, you know, and once again, I think, you know, having the courage to supervise, being responsible, understanding expectations, you know, we're, we're trying, I'm trying to solve problems before they come up because, if we do it once, we do it again, we do it a third time, we do it a fifth time, all of a sudden it becomes a habit. Then all of a sudden we pull up at 2 o'clock in the afternoon and Mrs. Smith is in in the front yard screaming that her invalid husband's trapped in a survivable space. And, you know, and we show up, you know, with, you know, with all these other issues that we've let happen right on. run after run after run. And we're not putting ourselves in the position to be successful at the fire of your career. It's just, it's just not a good thing. When companies don't perform, I think a lot of times it's because the supervisors did not have the courage to supervise. So that's my take on it. Pretty straightforward, straight truth from Dennis Riley right there. I like it. All right. Hannah we deal Elliott. with a lot. We deal with a lot of complicated, difficult stuff, and some stuff we make complicated and difficult that we don't need to. I mean, straightforward. Right you go on. to a fire run, put your gear on. Period. You get on a rig, sit in the seat, fasten your seatbelt. End of story. Boom. Pretty straightforward. Hannah Elliott's coming back at you. Are you ready? Bring it. 
I appreciate your answer, Chief. Please follow up with the way you strengthen that resolve to perform at your best when you're struggling. How do you like to recharge? Uh, well, and, and this was an important lesson that it took me a long, long time to realize. Okay, there, there is this world that surrounds the firehouse. Okay, and out there in the world, you know, for me, there, there were women, and there were golf courses, and there was the beach, and there was a whole bunch of stuff out there that I was just all about. You know, the fire department, fire department, fire department. So. As much as I love the fire department, and and I do, I mean, I absolutely do. To you know, to be able to recharge, Hannah, you got to disengage. You got to get away from it a little bit and find something else. Uh, you know, if if you start to do new stuff that you're not good at or things that you've never done before, it's going to be a challenge, and you're going to end up growing through the process of learning. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I don't play golf. I have a set of golf clubs and I do terrible damage to the lawn. Right. And every once in a while, I actually hit a ball kind of straight. Right on. I'm learning. And it, and excuse me, I, I actually, you know, keep a golf club in the back of my work car. And once a week at lunch, I go down to the driving range. I take my uniform shirt off, throw a golf shirt on, and I go out on the driving range, and I hit a small bucket of balls, and it allows me to disengage from the fire department and kind of do something else. It allows me to grow. So I think that's a good thing. I, I, I love the beach. I mean, so in my opinion, salt air cures all ills. So I like to go to the beach. You know, I like to ride my motorcycle. I, I like to read. So, you know, my answer to you, Hannah, is – Find some things outside the workplace that you can engage in. And what I found is, you know, when I'm doing something like that, you know, I, I'm kind of the all-in type person. So, right. you, know, I, right. you know, when I'm on the driving range, you know, I'm concentrating. I'm trying to hit that ball as hard as I can. And when I'm riding my motorcycle, I can just kind of look. And, and then when I'm done with that, at the very end, I realize that I haven't thought about the fire department. At all, I've been so engaged, and then when I start thinking about it, I I I I come to the point where, boy, I get to go back to the firehouse now, and it's like wow, and being away, and being able to disengage, allows me to realize how absolutely God-given fortunate I am to be a firefighter. That's awesome, and, and it helps, and, and that's how I you know. That's the tool that works for me. And I don't know if it'll work for, you know, Hannah or you or anybody else, but I found that to work very well. That's solid, solid. So in a nutshell, find something else to grow in, disengage yeah. and let, yeah, I love it. And uh, yeah, something like I, I'm learning here, Chief. All right. Um, now, Chief, I always like to ask the guests uh, if they have a book that they think firefighters should read. So I'll Yes. I just to see this. Yeah, I have been prepared. Is that showing the camera? Yes, leadership and training for the fight. Yes, by uh, Master Sergeant retired Paul Howell. Paul Howell was one of the. He, he was a Delta Force operator. Uh, he was one of the team leaders in the Battle of Mogadishu. Okay. So I think if there's anybody 
who who can have the title of expert in high threat, high stress environments. Paul Howell has earned that title. No and uh, I, I actually I, I actually keep a bunch of these books. I keep them, you know, in my office and I give them to people. I, wow. you know, OK, when I see when I see up and coming, you know, I, I write a little note. I give them the book, you know, maybe they read it. Maybe they don't. But, you know, this book, is, uh, he's got vignettes in there from the Battle of Mogadishu and some of the other things that he was involved with. But he just talks about, you know, training for the fight. How do you train? How do they train to be successful in their environment? And, you know, and look, you know, we're not Navy SEALs or health right. operators. I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't a Ranger. I wasn't an SF. I'm not, I wasn't, you know, in SEALs. But I was in the 82nd Airborne in the mid-70s, and I learned a lot from that experience getting ready for battle that works very well in the fire service. So I think that's an excellent book. It's an easy read. The chapters are short. And, you know, uh, what I like about Paul Howell is, you know, he's, he's, I, I like to think that, you know, I don't, I, I'm not a real big, you know, big word, flowery, long sentence type guy. Right. I, I, I really try to say, okay, look, here it is, A, B, C, and D, skipping, you know, he writes like that. So nice. it's something you can sit down and read and absorb very easily. So we, we call absolutely. that firefighter friendly. Absolutely. Right. Perfect. And that's leadership and training for the fight. Master Sergeant Paul Howe? Yep. Perfect. Perfect, man. No, I can't wait to get because it's not I, I, my list of books to read is growing every scrap because but I love it when I get a book I haven't seen and someone especially I don't think it can get better praise than you buy copies of it and give it out. That's that's the highest I praise I think you can give a book. Yep. Uh, and Hannah said, "Hey, free books with an exclamation point." So, <laughs> Come to work for me and you'll get one. There it is. All right, Chief. I have a thing we do on the weekly scrap, and it is the five questions for firefighters. So it started off as one question, but it's grown over time. And so are you, Chief Dennis Riley, ready for the five questions for firefighters? I was born ready. All right, perfect. Here we go. Question number one, what is the number one issue facing the modern fire service? I think the challenge for us right now is to try to get this whole, all these different dynamics and camps back in the focus. You know, we have have the safety, you know, we have, you know, maybe the, I don't mean to minimize safety and and I don't, you know, endorse, you know, kamikaze missions or whatever. But I think there is an element that's gone way to the extreme. Yeah. I think, you know, I was watching, you know, Chief Lasky's, you know, you know, talk, and he says we're two ideas, we're two good ideas away from really making the clean cab thing work. Absolutely, I can't for the life of me justify not having air packs in the cabs of rigs when we're going to structure fires with people trapped. And there's, there's three thousand people die in residential fires every year in this country. There's hundreds of people that die every week, and we can't have the air packs you know, sitting in the cabinets. I don't think we can stand here and talk about how our safety is number one when we're standing in the front yard with $4,000 worth of gear, $8,000 air pack, a hand line that can flow 160 gallons a minute, and Mrs. Smith is laying in the hallway in her nightgown. 100%. You're preaching now, Chief. I love it. 
Yo, no, 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 no. That that is not the service that I came into. Now, on the flip side, you know, very a lot of what happens in the fire service is because firefighters do dumb things. So I think that we have to try to kind of get that. We we need to bring these camps back in. You know, really, you know, try to cement a sound, solid direction that we're going to go in. I mean, there's a lot of things about the UL studies. I kind of like, all right, whatever, guys. You know, a bunch of guys running around with propellers on top of their beanies. But in all honesty, the FDNY has been using transitional fire attack for decades. There are fire departments in this country because of staffing that have no choice but to use transitional fire attack. So instead of having people just, you know, on either side of the fence saying, you don't know what you're talking about, you're an idiot, I think the challenge is to kind of pull these people together. And you know what? When we get all these people together in the room talking about these issues, we're going to make the smartest room because there's some smart people on both sides of this fence. So I think that's a challenge. Nice. I love it. And the fact that you tied it back into, then we can be the dumbest people in the smartest room. Perfect. Absolutely. (laughs) I'm getting old. I need to surround myself with young people. That's that wisdom. All right. Number two, what is the thing you are most excited about for the future of firefighting? The people who are coming on the job. And when I was a fire fire chief in Sunrise Beach, I hired uh, just one, just, this is just one of many. Well, I'll use them as an example. I'm not going to, I'm not going to call them out because, you know, the guys will, you know, he'll be a little bit embarrassed and the guys will make him, you know, pay for a steak dinner. But I hired an 18 year old kid. And I mean, I can say that because my youngest child is in her late thirties. Right on. Okay? So I hired an 18 year old kid and I got to tell you, this person has turned into an absolute solid rock star in the organization. And I hear hear people in my generation with five trumpets on their collar bitching about the millennials and, oh, my God, you know. Look, you know, first off, they bitch about them when they're sitting right next to them. Oh, those millennials, they, well, the millennials sitting right next to you and they have a name. So treat them like a person to start with. And the other thing is they're the future of the service. And there are some really great people coming into the service. And, and I get around recruit classes and I teach recruit classes and I go to graduation ceremonies and I see the hard work that these people, that these folks are doing. And I see the pride in their face when they pick up their certificate and, they, and they're standing tall, marching in you know, to those ceremonies. And I get excited because they're the future of the service. I mean, I, I you know, I, I'm on the, you know, I'm in the last couple of innings, you know, I'm, I'm going to retire in the next couple of years. And when I'm not here, I want to know that I can pass on the service that I love to people who are going to embrace it like I do. And I see them, I see them coming on the job all the time. So I'm really excited about that. That is awesome. That's awesome. Chief max points on that question. Absolutely. All right. Number three, uh, best rank or position to be in, in the fire service, according okay, to chief so, Dennis Riley. Well, of course the best position to be in is a firefighter. 
Okay. I mean, no doubt about it. If if yeah, if we want to talk about rank, and if if we have a chance, I'll circle back and tell a funny story about when I got promoted. But I think uh, for me, being a shift commander, being a battalion chief, was a phenomenal rank. I mean, I just yeah, I, I love being on the company, but being the battalion chief, you know, I had I, I had the expert power, and I had the legal power, so. I could set the tone for the shift. I could, you know, I could pretty much drive the train in the direction that I wanted it to go. And and, and, I, and I'll tell you, <clears throat> excuse me, I say this all the time. Oh, I'll put my people up. If you go back to the B platoon, when I was the battalion chief in Cherry Hill, I'll take any two of those companies and put them up against anybody any day right now. I had a chauffeur that worked for me was one of the best chauffeurs I've ever worked, I've ever been around. Company officer right now, most highly decorated person in the fire department, has made grab after grab after grab. Uh, you know, one of the recruits I had in my recruit class, he took over my role of running the training academy, and he mentored a whole new generation of instructors who are teaching our recruit school now in Cherry Hill. And, and I was back there two years ago for a day or two to observe and that, and they're doing a phenomenal job. Awesome. And as a battalion chief, I can't take credit for their successes because they did the hard work, but I do think that I can take credit for having some influence on developing these people. So for me, uh, the battalion chief rank was awesome. It's hard to argue with. It's very hard to argue with. Uh, so let me tell you the funny story about yeah, this. I tell, I no tell my wife this, and she doesn't even remember it. And and I and I and I go into details because this is how clear it is in my mind. I, I was a captain. And this is back when we had the telephone pagers. Okay. So I'm with my wife. We're in the parking lot at a Commerce Bank on Route 70 in Martin, New Jersey. And I look at my pager, and it's the deputy chief's office. So I called down there. I say, Hey, what do you need? And, and the deputy and I had had a really good relationship. I'd worked for him for a while, you know, and we were kind of close. So he says, hey, look, because we had had the uh, battalion chief assessment like a month and a half ago. So he goes, the list is coming out tomorrow, man. You're getting me. So I go to him. I said, all right, funny joke, funny joke. They're not going to make me. And he goes, no, no, I'm serious. I'm serious, dude. You're getting me. You're, you're going to make battalion chief. And I said, look, bro. You and I both know that they would promote Frosty the Snowman before they promoted <laughs> me, the battalion chief. Right. You know, I, I, you know I, I, I've, I've got a kind of, I've got a hard edge. I mean, I admit it. You know, my wife tells me I got to soften that up, and, and she's right. But I'm just too, you know, stubborn to listen to her. You know, I'm pretty opinionated. I'm pretty outspoken. I said, man, there's no way they're going to make me battalion chief. And he goes, I'm telling you, you're going to get made. I said, you know what? I'll be there. I can be there in 10 minutes. I'm coming down. You show me the papers. So we drive down to this guy's, you know, drive down to the firehouse. I walk in the firehouse. His secretary looks at me. He goes, yeah, he's waiting for me. So I walk in his office. I go, okay, let me see it. And he slides the order across his desk. And I look at it. He goes, I told you, hot rod, you're getting made. And I go, yeah. And I mean, I'm arguing with the deputy chief. Right. Like the number two guy in fire. I'm saying, no, you're full of shit. They're not going to Right. No way. So I go back, I get in the truck, my wife looks at me and she goes, well, what's the deal? And I looked at, I look at her and I said, I'm going to get made. And she goes, 
no way. <laughs> it's not that she didn't have faith in me. Right? She was she just knew you. No way. But I, I still remember that to this day. And, and you know what? That's a little memory. And, and I tell like people I can. If you stay in the business long enough, you're going to have memories like this. And, 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 you know, I mean, I got promoted. I, I made chief in, damn, when was that? 89. I made chief in like 94. Wow. You know? Wow. That was a long time ago. Yes, sir. And I can, I, I can still see, I can, I can play this whole story out of my mind. I can see it all. You know, Hannah and all you, and everybody else out there, stick around because this is the best job on the face of your, and if you stay around long enough, you're going to have memories like that. You know, and I'm sitting here smiling about it. I remember, I remember it like it was yesterday. It was like 25 years ago, man. Wow. That's yeah. awesome, too. They 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 promote Frosty the Snowman before they'd make me. I'll be right down there. So. Uh, prove it, basically, and he did. Slid the paper across uh, the desk, and I just looked at him. I go, "Yes, you're right, Chief. Have a good day." <laughs> I turn around. I said, "Man, uh, I'm gonna get out of the office before he rips up the paper." I don't want to jinx it. All right, nope. number four. Uh, best advice you have ever received. So uh, going back to when I got promoted battalion chief, uh, Roger Allshafer was a retired commissioner at Philadelphia, and he came across the river, and he became our chief, and he's actually the chief who promoted me. So the first day I showed for my first tour, I showed up, and he called me in. He said, hey, come into my office. And, you know, this is like the one time he came around from his desk and actually sat next to me instead of having me sit on the other side of the desk. And you all know what that means. So he looked at me, he goes, you know, congratulations, Dennis. You did a great job on the assessment center. But my word of advice to you is remember, every day you come to work, you take the test that really counts. Nice. And and that has just stuck with me. You know, we we may get promoted or, you know, we graduate from the fire academy. We got to take the state certification exam, whatever. That's an event. That we, you know, that we study for and we take the true test of what we do and and really more than that of who we are is what we do every day in a firehouse. And that just I, I remember once again, you know, this is 25 years ago. Chief Allshafer said that to me and it has stuck with me every once in a while in Cherry Hill. I would go. Uh, we had some 18 story high rise buildings and we had a whole set of master keys. I'd go up on the roof of the building and I would just look out. And from 18 stories, I could look out and I could see the entire city. And, you know, and, and it sounds corny and cliche, but I would think about that. You know, anything that happens in this city today, anything, yeah. it's on my shoulders yes, sir. to solve the problem. Yes, and, and, and that's what Roger was talking about. That was your test. So that is the best piece of advice uh, I've ever had given to me as I promote up. And as a fireman or a firefighter, a uh, firefighter, just worry about being the best firefighter you can be. You don't have to worry about outdoing Smith or Jones or whatever. Just be the best that you can be. When you start focusing your energy internally, you'll develop the skills and talents that you have, not trying to copy someone else because you may not have their skill you may not have their you know coordination or their god-given gifts 
focus on being the best that you can be. So those are two pieces of advice. Love it, Chief. Love it. All right, final question. One of my favorites. This is my favorite question, and it's heavy fire and tenable space. Would you rather be assigned to the nozzle or first in on VES? Okay, so I promoted off of the rescue, so okay. you know I'm going to have to make the grab. Okay. But but we're on a 24-hour tour, so I'm hoping you know we cross staff an engine, and then three hours later we get another run, and we take the engine. And and we get and we get to push get to get get, get that nozzle time, time. man I, I I want it all man best I of both worlds why not there you go why? there you go but push comes to shove you're making the grab I'm making the grab fair enough hey I cannot knock it there Chief Dennis Riley the five questions for firefighters sir thank you very much for doing it max points uh, throughout um, best place to contact you if people want to get in touch with you uh, touch base with you find out advice sure. whatever. Uh, Instagram, uh, CHFD Harley, Cherry Hill Fire Department, Harley like the motorcycle. Uh, you know, I, I've got a Facebook page. You can hit me on that. You know, I'm like, I'm, I'm hot and cold on, on Facebook. So, uh, they work out pretty well. And, you know, and my email is just CHFD Harley at Gmail. So feel free. Uh, I am, I, I, I will give a little plug for myself. I sure. am. I am playing around with the idea of starting up my own training organization, my own training company, Very uh, nice. first line fire service training. So, you know, that may be coming online. We'll see. I'd like to do it. It's just how much time I can, you know, spare. Hundred percent. I think I've got some pretty neat stuff I can uh, I can throw on out there that may interest some people. So. Oh, absolutely! I can tell just by listening to you. Just listening to you for this last uh, hour and ten minutes or so. It's been awesome. Uh, well, I'm training academy down in Galveston with the FD Tactics guys. I will definitely be there, and uh, and I've talked with Kurt Isaacson, and there may be a possibility I will be down there in uh, February when he does his uh, command officer development program. I'll be in. I'll be there in February. So if you're out there, I'll see you out there. And then There's I, a possibility. I would head to Galveston, but I'm pretty sure I'm going to Pensacola for Isaacson's uh, his commanding from the sidelines he's got going on in November. Yeah, if that still happened, I don't know if Sally's messed with it or not, but uh, hopefully not. I don't. Uh, you know, they, they they had some. They they really took it on the chin down there, but you know he he's pretty resilient, and I wouldn't be surprised if he figures out a way to pull it. Right on, right on. Yeah, you know, he's a great guy. You know, I, I, I'll say this. Okay, you know, I you know I, I'm just you know. I'm just Joe Schmo, you know, small town little fire chief. But if you put the time and the effort in and you start reaching out and meeting people, I'm very proud to say I got Kurt Isaacson's cell phone number. That's and I can call him up right now and he'll answer, you know. And, and who am I? You know, like I said, I'm a small town fire chief. You know, there's a whole bunch of great people out there who are doing great things. You know, Kurt Isaacson, uh, David Griffin, uh, the first two yeah. chauffeurs, at the Charleston Nine Fire. I mean, I talked to him. You know, I got his email. I got his cell phone. I, I talked to him. I mean, Kurt Isaacson. I mean, uh, you know, Howard and the FT Tactics guys. I got a lot of people in my network, and I'm not bragging that I got this great network. What I'm saying is be authentic, be real, put your heart into the job, and paths will cross. And then all of a sudden, before you know it, you got some people in your cell phone. I, you know, there, there's this cat. He's he's my age. His name is Tommy Gardner. He's a captain 
on a squad on the new squad company they just put in in Staten Island. I think it's I think it's Squad Eight. I talked to Tommy on a regular basis before Tommy went there as a company commander. He was the covering officer at FDNY SOC. I mean, I met Tommy. Wow. I started talking. Before you know it, we become friends. I got his phone number. I mean, I, I got a difficult issue. There's an example. You got a difficult issue you need to deal with. What type of advice you think you're going to get from an FDNY captain who's got like 37 years on the job? Right on. Do, do you think he's going to be able to say, hey, you know, maybe I want to think about doing this or that? Might have a little so, bit of experience to draw on. Man, if you're, you know, if you're into the job and you're going to make this job your life's work, and that's what I think it is for me, it's my life's work, just concentrate on being as good as you can, you know, be honest, be with, you know, be, be real, keep your honor and integrity, and your paths are going to cross with some dynamite people. And all these people, you know, that I talked about, right, you know, that I just ran down that laundry list, I could call them right now and they'd answer the phone, hey, man, what's going on? Hey, I need help. All right, what do you need? Right on. They give you they give you the shirt off of their back. There's, you know, another reason why I stay energized about the fire service is, you know, I I am in the company of some phenomenal people. So, what you know, what why do I want to go, you know, selling cars or you know, putting roofs on houses when I get to be around people like I just described? It's like man, greatest job on earth. Greatest it, job on earth, man. It's such a gift. So. 100%. Absolutely, Chief. It has been a pleasure. You have made Weekly Scrap number 50, one for the uh, record book. So thank you for being an awesome guest. Uh, for everybody who watched live, thank you for the questions. Hannah, Sean, Austin. Austin Moreland said, best chief in the business, in my opinion. He's talking about you, sir. He said, so glad I got to work under him, have learned so much, and I am still learning a lot from Chief Riley. Hannah said, thank you so much, Chief. I was born in 97, but I loved hearing your memory and how excited you are for the new fireman coming onto the job. So you got that. If they'll send you the address, their addresses, I'll get the gift cards out to them tonight. Fair enough. I'll, I'll make sure that happens. Thank you so much for being the guest on number fi- number 50. Chief Dennis Riley, thank you, sir. For every everybody that put in questions and comments, I appreciate you. and I hope the tone stays silent unless it's burning. Stay safe out there. Thanks for listening to the Weekly Scrap. Please subscribe and please share. We'll see you at the next episode.